Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends at Future Primitive. I'm really looking forward to this uh, conversation today with Stephen Harrod Buhner. He is an earth poet and the award-winning author of 15 books on nature, indigenous cultures, the environment, and herbal medicine. He comes from a long line of healers including Leroy Burney, Surgeon General of the United States under Eisenhower and Kennedy, and Elizabeth Lusterhide, a midwife and herbalist who worked in rural Indiana in the early 19th century. The greatest influences of his work, however, have been his great-grandfather, C.G. Harrod, who primarily used botanical medicines, also in rural Indiana, when he began his work as a physician in 1911. Stephen's recent books, recent works are Insoling Language on Art, on the Arts of Nonfiction and the Writer's Life, Pine Pollen, Ancient Medicine for a Modern World, Herbal Antibiotics, second edition, healing Lyme co-infections and herbal antivirals, natural treatments for emerging and resistant viral infections. So, Stephen, talk to us about you being the green man. About being the green man. Well, it's a funny thing. I because I spent so much time with my great-grandparents, and they really were informed by a mindset from the 19th century. Um, Many of them, my great-grandparents I knew, and they were born in the late 1800s, 1880s, and my grandparents were all born right around 1900. So that sort of framework or orientation was very different. And um, the population was much lower when I was born. The United States had about 100 or 120 million fewer people. And there was a lot more wild land. And I just grew up with that as sort of a given then and spent a lot of time in the forests with my great-grandfather and became very close to nature as a result, even though I lived in what was uh, the largest city in Kentucky, Louisville, it was still very small. And that sort of orientation just uh, changed me as I went to school and studied. And as time moved on, and we moved into the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, things began to be a lot more industrial, a lot more mechanical, a lot more removed from that sort of sense of earth and nature 
when I grew up, and I didn't like it much. So I um, pretty much early on abandoned that sort of approach. And one day I made a list of all of the teachers who had moved me in a similar way as my great-grandfather had, and I then began to go and see if I could study with every one of those people, like Buckminster Fuller or Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and I Mm -hmm. spent several years doing that and just sort of followed that particular interest of mine deeper into the world, and all of my works really come out of that a decision following that feeling I had for the earth. Stephen, I have a very um, strange question that uh, that came up, and uh, spontaneously, how does dying, human dying, connect us to all the rest of nature? <laughs> That's a really great question. Uh, hardly anybody ever talks about that. You know, one thing that I like to start off when I talk about that rather directly is because I've always been sort of part of the liberal world and the left and and everything, and everybody's so interested there in recycling and biodegradability is that, you know, human beings are biodegradable. <laughs> we're meant to biodegrade. Mm. You know, we're biodegrading now as I speak, and it's an important thing, and our sort of terror, especially in the United States about our own biodegradability leads to all kinds of strange behaviors. I remember one person I knew said, yeah, all this love and light stuff is great, but we're talking about survival here. <laughs> you know, and so that you just threw away all of our entire philosophical foundation, you know, and mm-hmm. went for the immediate survival. But the thing is, when you're looking at the earth and you're dealing with the depths of ecological reality and the earth as a living organism as Gaia, you have to understand things have been dying here on this planet for at least three and a half billion years. Mm -hmm. If there's one thing living organisms know how to do here, it's die. And it's an, an integral part of what it means to be a living organism, to be an expression of Gaia in a particular physical form. So it's absolutely crucial that there be this continual turnover of living organisms because Gaia is always learning and innovating over very long timelines. We're just, as Buckminster Fuller put it once, he said, we're just throwaway. We're just part of the passing scenario that's happening and it's you know and many indigenous cultures would say we have to make way for the generations that will be coming after us and the thing i found in studying with people like elizabeth kubler ross and their treatment of cancer patients is that there's this place human beings can get to where they aren't afraid of dying they get into this kind of amazing Space that people often remark on of this deep acceptance and this sort of beautiful place. And the thing is, what I began to realize over time is that every living organism here knows how to die because death has been happening for so long. It's encoded into us to recognize that time and begin to move. So I, I consider it an integral part of an ecological 
education an integral part of really fully inhabiting a life because it, you also have to fully inhabit the dying process. And mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. important, I think. Mm-hmm. So um, some of us have learned a little bit about dying by partaking in the medicines of the earth, the entheogens, what is called entheogens now. So I'm making those that segue because you wrote to me that your present book, the, the book that you are writing now, Gaia's Mind, The Intelligence of Plants, uh, you speak about the healing medicines, entheogenic medicines of the earth. Yeah, that's one of the things, one of the things I'm really interested in always is what I consider the most important question to ask about almost anything, and that is, what's its ecological function? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people um, have never asked, for instance, what's the ecological function of the human species, and or what's the ecological function of psilocybin. The Earth, everything that we see, every living organism that we see, is expressed out of the ecological matrix of the planet to fulfill specific functions. They're generated to help maintain the self-organized state of the Gaian system, and and each thing does something ecologically to help the Gaian system maintain itself to continue. So, you know, when you're talking about entheogens and that dying thing, it sparks another thought which leads into it for Mm -hmm. me, which is that... Each of us is experiencing dying in various ways throughout our whole life. You know, when we're born and when we come out of our mother's womb, it's the death of one part of life and the beginning of another. When we move into adolescence, it's the death of our childhood and the movement into another kind of life. Then when we move into middle age, it's the death of our younger self and moving into And with each shift... There's a part of us that we leave behind that we can never gain back again. And so when we get to the final transition of moving into death, in a way we've already experienced many little deaths that sort of help prepare us for it. Now, when you get into entheogens, entheogens are, you know, one of the things I found humorous about writing this book are all of the different terms that people have for you know, psilocybin or LSD. I mean, there's psychedelics. Yeah, yeah. There's there's hallucinogens and psychotropics and yes. intactogens and entheogens <laughs> and neuronostics and all different <laughs> kinds of things. Everybody's sort of like struggling with, you know, they know what it is, but they just don't really know how to describe what it is in a in a phrase. And but those substances do a very particular thing, and so. The way I began looking at it is that, you know, one of the things that they do is they open what researchers call sensory gating channels. Now, sensory gating channels, what those really are is what William Blake called the doors of perception Mm -hmm. and what, you know, Aldous Huxley wrote his famous piece called the doors of perception based on that phrase from William Blake. But sensory gating channels, what happens is is when we're 
just existing right now in this minute. We're we're immersed in a field of sensory inputs. There's all of the visual things in the room that you're in now, in the room that I'm in, and mm-hmm. and every bit of that visual data is actually going through our eye into our brain, into our central nervous system. And each step along the way, what happens is some of it is gated out. There's literally little portals in the nervous system and eight different organs of the brain that analyze what's coming in and they decide how much of it needs to reach conscious mind and so they gate it out. They close the gating and some of it just becomes then background noise. So by the time it goes through these eight or 10 or 12 gating processes, when it gets to our conscious mind, there's, there's very little left comparatively. And, and what that does is it allows us to avoid sensory overload. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is that in people that are labeled schizophrenic, their sensory gating channels tend to be extremely open and they experience themselves many times as being inundated in a sea of sensory data. Not just sensory data coming from outside, but sensory data coming from inside, things that filter up from all of their different organs in their body. It's like their interior world and their exterior world, they're just inundating them with stuff. Mm -hmm. And this also tends to happen when people are on hallucinogens. So the fascinating thing to me is that when somebody takes a hallucinogenic substance, what it does is it very widely opens sensory gating channels. And then you begin to experience what the German poet Gottfried Ben recalled, the metaphysical background of the world, Mm. which I particularly love that phrase. You begin to experience the meanings that reside inside physical objects. Mm, That's delicious. It is delicious, isn't it? Yes. And it's carried to us, those meanings are carried to us through the sensory impulses that we pick up. And one of the things that hallucinogens do is when you get high on one, the habituation that you have to, you know, the background sensory data is removed. And you begin to then attend to things extremely deeply, the, um, what happens is the novelty of everything that you're encountering increases substantially. So you can spend a lot of time with a single thing and attend to its meanings more deeply. And that begins to take you very much into the heart of the world. And that represents a significant shift in status from sort of the normal world of perception that we're trained in in our culture. And you begin to move out of that world into a world that's actually much more real and has a lot more to do with the nature of of the earth itself than the one in which we're normally trained. And that represents a bifurcation. It's you begin to leave a certain kind of life behind and encounter another one that has a lot more meaning to it. And in that sense, to reference your earlier point, there's a certain death that occurs of the ending of a certain way of life and something new very much begins. I 
could say that the most profound experiences I have had in uh, a psychedelic entheogen um, state has been going outside, what, what people call the outside, and the vibrating presence of the other, of other living things outside of myself trees and and grass and is does that connection are these things speaking to us all the time and when we when we take these things we get more connected yeah they, that, that's the thing is that our we've been trained culturally in the united states more than any other culture on the planet and after that um probably canada UK, Australia, really more the English-speaking countries. And then after that, it would be more like the, the European continent. We've been trained to view the environment through which we move as a static backdrop filled with, you know, pretty much immovable things and kind of stupid things at that. You know, we're, taught, we're the only real actors moving yeah. across the stage, and we're the only intelligent participant that has language and we can make tools and and you know and and create ridiculous things like philosophy courses and universities and what happens is there's this sort of sense of entitlement that almost all human beings have about their position and mm-hmm. but what's really true is when you you begin to look very deeply into the world itself and what's what's sort of sad about it is the stuff I'm going to talk about is widely known to a number of scientists, but it's never percolated into the schools or into general knowledge. And, you know, it sort of kind of keeps us in this weird 19th century framework. But the thing is, everything is highly intelligent, okay? Everything, every living organism has a neural network, just as we do. Everything processes information, everything is highly intelligent the way they do it. It's like just looking at bacteria, which is something I've been interested in for a long time. Mm -hmm. Anything that touches a bacteria, and this is true of every living organism, anything that touches it, the bacteria, the living organism has to figure out what's touching it. And because they need to know to protect their own structural integrity, they have to be able to analyze what's touching it, and also its intent. So they actually look for meaning to Mm -hmm. determine what's this thing intending toward me. Mm. And then once they determine its intent, then they craft a response, okay? Mm. And the responses they craft are up to their individual choices. It's what they determine. So there's a huge amount of individual initiative that's involved and how any living organism responds to what's touching it. And that's really the essence of chaos theory or nonlinearity. It's why things aren't predictable, because you've got trillions upon trillions of living organisms all choosing from one moment to the next how to respond to what's touching them. And the thing is, when... Well, just a couple of, of other points. They've determined that slime mold... Mm-hmm. Can is highly intelligent. They can find its way through a maze. Isn't that fascinating? Wow! And when bacteria, of course, they you know they craft 
solutions to antibiotics so that the antibiotics won't affect them. They actually change their genetic structure. People that are doing really leading-edge work with bacteria now are very clear. Bacteria are highly intelligent. They create cities, which are called biofilms. They have buildings in the cities. They have highways in the cities. They have communication networks. They have a highly developed language. They create tools, which they then use, which are basically chemicals, to create certain impacts in their environment to protect themselves. They actually have even found bacteria that create, they make electric cables that look just like our electric cables. They're insulated. They carry electricity down in the deep parts of the ocean to warm their biofilms so that their cities have, mm-hmm. <laughs> have energy. Mm-hmm. So when you start really looking, every part of the world is highly intelligent, highly aware, highly interactive, and they all possess linguistic ability, even though it's different than that, than our own. When we take entheogens and our sensory gating channels open very widely, mm-hmm. what happens is we begin to be aware, as Pythagoras said, that everything around us is intelligent, everything around us is communicating, and that you know, this long loneliness of the human species that we've been trained Mm -hmm. to experience, that it's really an illusion. And we leave, begin to leave that orientation and walk into this living, aware, intelligent, interactive world of which we're just one part. And so for many people taking entheogens, there's this feeling of kinship, this feeling of coming home, this feeling that you know, we're in this place that we've always known about, but that we somehow forgot. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, part of the ecological function of entheogens. They, the interesting thing is, you know, I used to do a lot of drugs with people back in the 60s, and a lot of these people now wear three-piece suits and they're very serious people, but... Yeah. They, you know, while they were stoned, they came up with these great ideas for businesses. And many of the businesses that people have created back then came from insights that they got while they were taking psychotropics. And Steve Jobs. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Steve Jobs is a great example. And he's one of the few that wasn't ashamed of it. He just right. said, look. And what it does is it gets us out of our habituated framework. And it allows us to interact more directly with the world and then innovate in our behavior to what we're perceiving in the deeper aspects of the world in which we're embedded. And that is its exact ecological function because every living organism that there is has sensory gating channels just like we do. And whenever any other living organism ingests a psychotropic molecule, it expands their sensory gating parameters considerably, and it allows them to begin innovating outside of their habituated parameters. And what that does is it allows the Earth ecosystems, it creates or generates tremendous flexibility and innovation in the system to environmental perturbations and challenges. That's that's what it's for. Oh, 
you you have me crying and and I'm crying because it's this release from loneliness yeah. this this being together with everything um I wanted to ask you is there a uh, is there a reason or poetic reason why ayahuasca appears in South America iboga appears amongst the pygmies various plants appear in certain places well you've got um, there's a couple of responses to that one is ayahuasca is a DMT um, formulation and um, it's really two plants together one is DMT and the other is an if I recall right it's an MAO inhibitor that that it allows the DMT to bypass the GI tract membrane and actually get into the blood supply. And so the ayahuasca really refers to that combination of plants, one which will allow it in and the other which actually does its stuff. Now, DMT is an incredibly widespread chemical in the plant world. It's in literally every ecosystem on the planet except probably Antarctica. And so it comes in a lot of different forms and a lot of different shapes. But those plants in those ecosystems, um, what's interesting when I began looking deeper into it, there is a potent hallucinogenic plant in every ecosystem on the planet, and usually there's a complex of them. Now, the interesting thing about every hallucinogenic plant opens a slightly different spectrum of sensory gating channels. They're not all identical. LSD, which is it's a modified molecule, but the from um, rye ergot, but yes. those chemicals in the rye ergot do actually open sensory gating channels just the same way purified LSD does. And, and psilocybin, for instance, is a mushroom, but it's The mushroom is the fruiting body of the plant. The plant itself are, is a mycelial network of thin white threads that run underneath the ground. And it's primarily a plant that grows in grassland ecozones. So it's connected into the root network of plants. And in many ways, when you start to look more deeply at this, the different kind of ecozones each tend to have a different um, grouping of psychotropics that are in that region. DMT tends to be located more in non-grassland ecozones, psilocybin in grassland ecozones, for instance. And so, and also you've got that different spectrum. The neat thing about Gaia is Gaia is really into redundant systems. That's why we have two lungs, not one, two kidneys, not one, for instance, and or two hemispheres of our brain even, for yes. instance. And so there's this, this redundancy that runs through. So if one system fails, another system can sort of take up the slack. So it's really ecozone specific as to the reason why they're located the way they are. And then, of course, when you have the indigenous cultures who've spent generations upon generations living in a particular ecozone, they're really part of that ecological framework in that place, just like the grasses are.
are just like the buffalo might be, just like the giraffe, whatever is living there. And they begin to partake of the particular um, hallucinogenic that is specific to that ecozone. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, every human group in every eco-range learned the use of those psychotropic plants. There isn't any place where they didn't take it. And if you look at the animals in the eco-range, all of them consume the psychotropic plants as well. It's, it's a pervasive dynamic. But what's even more fascinating, which is part of what I get into in the new book, is, is the plants take the, the hallucinogens just the way all of the other organisms that live there do. Wow. Um, please, that was a question I wanted to ask you. I mean, is uh, is the grass stoned? <laughs> oh, yes, indeed, the grass is stoned. <laughs> and, the, the, see, the fascinating thing is, you know, I love this. Like, people are so dismissive of plants. You know, I mean, somebody without brain function is called a vegetable. Yes. You know, I mean, you can't get more clear than that about culturally how we think of plants. You know, but what's fascinating is plants have a brain that is, in many instances, more, possesses more neurons than a human brain. Okay, now this completely undercuts our entire argument for superiority. And it's, you know, very upsetting to mechanicalists of all sort and human centrists, of course. But the thing is, if you take... Like our brain is basically an organ. People tend to look for brain, but that's not actually the important thing to look for. The important thing to look for is neural network. So if you take our brain organ and you pull the neural network out of it, and then you compare it to the root system of a plant, it looks identical. And there's a reason why. It's because that. That is the plant brain, is the root system of the plant, only it doesn't need an organ to house the neural net. It uses the soil to do that. It has synopses, synapses exactly like we do in our brain. Wow. It uses exactly the same kind of neurotransmitters that we use for information to go between synapses, and it has an extremely rapid neural network that runs the entire body of the plant so that there's a lot of information communicated with trees for instance our annual or means i mean they're perennial plants the leaf canopy is really a subcortical section of the brain and the leaves are all sort of connected together as a neural network pulling in information from the exterior world that has been processed by the root system now an average a rye plant, for instance, will have about 14 billion neurons in it. A human brain has about 86 billion. Mm -hmm. But when you look at something like an aspen grove, an aspen groves, the trees themselves are only shoots that are sent up from this massive root system. And the oldest one that has been found is over 100,000 years old. It's neural system is about four times larger than a human being. So what you're getting is this highly intelligent 
organism that's lived for 100,000 years through all different kinds of environmental shifts, and it's constantly analyzing its environment and altering itself in order to adapt to changing conditions. And one of the things that the plants do is that when there's environmental stressors that are demanding adaptation, they then began ingesting, just like we do, the psychotropics that are present in their eco-range. With plants like aspen groves, for instance, it's communicated through a mycelial network. It's transmitted from other plants in the region to the plants that need it. In a grassland, the grass is just going to take it directly from the psilocybin mycelia. And the fascinating thing is that when any neural net, including human beings, our plants, ingests the psychotropic, what it does is it stimulates neural development, more neurons form, Mm -hmm. and the neurons begin to form in unique um, uh, formations. There's really unique constellations of formations that begin to occur, and the amount of data that is being taken in by the plant or whatever organism, they're able to then use this altered neural net to respond to the data that they're taking in, and they can see much deeper into intent and meaning and potential outcomes. So it's a very fascinating process. And the only person I know that tested plants for this, though there's a number of people that are really getting into it again, was uh, Jagatis Bose took plants in about 1900, and he covered trees with these huge canopies these huge tents, and then he would, he had a way to measure the nervous responses of plants, and so he would get the plant, a tree drunk, and the tree would get drunk just like a human being. It would get the slur at speech, and it would get giddy, and then it would have a hangover the next day. And then he goes into exhaustive detail about how he could measure this and how he analyzed it, and then he would give them opium and see what happened and all the various different kinds of neuroactive chemicals he could find. And they responded exactly the same way human beings or any other organism does. So we're not alone in this. Wow. As in, hi, I'm a cottonwood tree and I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, see, the interesting thing is when apple trees drop their apples on the ground, and the apples begin to get old and then they begin to ferment. Everybody knows about bees and birds and stuff going there and getting drunk on them. But the thing is, as it rains, all of that alcohol goes down into the roots and the tree itself gets drunk, mm-hmm. which I think is fascinating. I mean, yeah. uh, what a great way to live. Yes, wonderful. So, Stephen, one could say that, uh, and it's been said, that most of your work is about recognition of the sacredness of the earth. And so when you write about Gaia's mind, uh, you're really writing about sacrality, the deeper sacrality. There is a thing that happens in all living organisms. And when we are touched and touch the deeper meanings inside the world, there's a sense of 
sacredness and awe that frequently occurs. I mean, there's very, very human, few human beings that haven't experienced that, even if it's only been a few times of yeah. walking in a forest and coming upon an, an amazing rock formation or a great tree or upon seeing the Grand Canyon or something like that where you're just taken out of yourself and you feel this deeper thing happening. And it's, to me, the, the crucial part of that is it's a feeling thing. It's not a thinking thing. Mm-hmm. And so that, the restoration of that feeling sense has occupied my work for the past 40 years. The reclaiming, as what James Hillman called it, reclaiming the response of the heart to what's presented to the senses. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's one of the most wonderful phrases I've ever yes, heard. Yes. And then you began to go out and begin to touch the world with your feeling sense. How does this thing feel? How does that thing feel? And as you do that, you begin to encounter what William Blake called a golden string or what William Stafford developed it as a golden thread, which I I don't know, that's just more poetic to me. Mm -hmm. And that William Stafford as a poet said he would follow these golden threads deep into the world and then write his poetry about what he found there. So everybody that begins to do this, and people who have taken hallucinogens, it's very common for them to talk about this in their own way, that they're you know, very altered on whatever the drug was that they took. And then they begin to notice certain things begin to capture their attention. And when the thing captures their attention, they're extremely fascinated by it, and they don't want to go away from it. They want to really go deeply into it. And, you know, the point William Stafford said, he said, when you have a response, trust it. It has a meaning. Mm-hmm. because of all of the things that are in your sensory field that that one thing captured your attention it's something in the world calling the deeper response of your soul or your heart to that thing there's a reason for it and so and when you follow that I mean that's what Buckminster Fuller was talking about when he said follow the thing that you're meant to do and the, the making a living will take care of itself. I mean, he, he didn't put in the next part, which is you're going to have to work your ass off sometimes <laughs> a lot of different things. But yeah, if you do do that and you're willing to work hard, yeah, the making a living does take care of itself. And so my thing is, I mean, really what the ecstatic journey is, yes. is following that golden thread deeper and deeper and deeper into the heart of the world, getting closer and closer and closer to the core sacredness that's there, and then just all of the things that happen on that journey that that process necessitates. And, you know, Goethe, the great German poet, was real clear about it. He says, this has worked my poor ego in ways that I hardly thought possible. Yes. Yes. So let's uh, have a few words out of your toolbox. How I was thinking, so we're really all on hallucinogens all the time and everything is, um, but we are very distracted. How do you 
manage to concentrate on a daily basis so you can ensoul what you feel into language, into writing? Well, the, the beginning of all of this, no matter where, what specific focus, where I take it to, is the feeling sense. And it's everybody's had that experience of they walk into a restaurant with a friend, they go, let's see, let's go out to eat, let's try this new place. They walk into the place, and they just all of a sudden both stop, and they look at each other and go, you know, this place feels really weird, let's leave. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. That's the feeling sense. That's the response of the heart to what's presented to the senses. Most people, if you ask them how they feel right now, are going to give you something like mad, sad, glad, scared, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. They're going to talk about the emotional content, mm-hmm. but that feeling sense that you're feeling in a restaurant, it's it's a basically a non-kinesthetic form of touching. You know, you feel something in the atmosphere of the place, and there's a meaning in it. I mean, and many people have also had the experience where you're walking along, you see a dog laying on a sidewalk, and you go, oh, hi, hi, and then all of a sudden you become aware that even though the dog's not growling or anything, there's something wrong with that dog. I mean, it's not a friendly dog. And if you get very close, because there's, like, there's all of these dogs like this that you run into sooner or later, they pretend to be nice <laughs> until you get really close. And then they just scare the bejesus out of you because they leap up and start growling, you know. And after a while, you start to go, yeah, okay, there's that feeling again. That dog's not friendly. So... It's basically taking that experience and beginning to develop it. And the thing is, when somebody takes hallucinogens, the feeling sense becomes highly activated. People are extremely aware of how everything feels. And at the same time, visual, the visual sensory inputs begin to take on a certain luminosity and sounds. They begin to drop deeper into sounds and everything becomes just much more fascinating that way. But the, the foundation for all of it is the feeling sense. That's what musicians use to make music that's real. That's what writers use. When writers write, what they're doing, and I, I went into this in huge detail in my book, Consoling Language, what, what they do is they blend the visual sense with the feeling Okay, so, and what they're doing is artists of all sorts that are actually real artists as opposed to fake artists, Mm -hmm. what they're really doing is they're creating a synesthesia of sensory um, perception. So that when a writer writes a scene of, of, you know, you're driving up to a house on on a rainy evening and you get out of the car and there's this kind of warm light coming out of the windows in the house, feels, you know, homey and inviting. What that's really talking about is the feeling dynamic of the house or what the writer William Mm -hmm. Gass calls the secret kinesis of things. I love that. It's such a brilliant phrase. The Mm -hmm. secret kinesis of things. You can't, you know, you can't find the secret kinesis of things visually or auditorily or olfactory. You have to find it through your own feeling sense. And when a writer blends the feeling and the visual sense together, whenever you read a scene, it comes alive. You literally 
feel the reality of the thing. And writers, quite often nonfiction writers who aren't very good, when they don't do that, it's just, you know, it's a laundry list of words. It's boring. It doesn't capture the attention. And now, you know, musicians do the same thing. They, they blend sound with feeling. So when they play the song, you're pulled into it. And, the, you know, what's really brilliant about it is that notes actually have an emotional tone to each note or a feeling tone to each note. Each one feels slightly different. And when you put them together in a sequence, it creates a series of feeling complexes in the person who hears it. And a really good songwriter, that series of feeling complexes in the melody line will match exactly the story that the lyrics themselves tell. So you get it in both ways through this this sound that is way deeper than linguistic sounds and at the same time so both your conscious mind and your deeper self experience the communication that's hidden inside there. Now it's fascinating with you know, you're working with musicians, which I've been doing a lot the last few years and um, which is just really incredible. They know about this, but they have to use metaphors to talk about it. So these guys will be doing a song, these blues players, and they'll go, you know, put some stink on it. Mm-hmm. You know, now when they're all sitting around, they'll go put some stink on it. They all know what that means. Or they'll say, put some funk onto it. They all know what that means, but they don't. They're like, yeah, you have to use metaphors because we don't have a way of actually, you know, easily saying this sequence of notes produces this emotional tone in the listener if they're constructed this way. They just go to that shorthand. Well, one of my favorite expressions when I'm cooking is whether is whether the the cooking has enough armpit. <laughs> <laughs> so I've never heard that before. I know. I I think I invented it, but uh, cooking with armpit, that's it. So so there's this this thing, what they're, you know, musicians almost more than anybody else still have that feeling sense highly activated because if you don't feel the music when you're playing it, people don't feel it when they hear it. It doesn't work. It sounds mechanical, not alive, empty. The thing is, is that when you begin to reclaim that feeling sense, and the thing I always recommend to people is that, you know, to train yourself in it, you just have to, every minute of every day, wherever you go, whatever you encounter, you begin asking yourself, how does it feel? Mm-hmm. How does this um, filing cabinet feel? How does this chair feel when I look at it? How does this building feel? When I see this building, how does it feel? When I see this restaurant? or when I see this person. And you start then, the Bushmen of the Kalahari are quite clear about this. They call this creating a library of feeling. Mm. To travel through the world from their earliest age, their children begin accumulating a library of feelings. They know how every plant feels. Mm -hmm. They know how every landscape feels. Every stone, everything they go through, plus all of the people in their community And they say then that as you go deeper into the feeling of a thing, you begin to become that thing yourself. You know it from inside itself just as it knows you. Mm -hmm. That 
you know, they're the only people I've heard that, that they were clearly discussing it as this library or a database of feeling responses that you build up inside yourself. And the interesting thing is, as you do that, the sensory gating channels begin to open more widely of their own accord. So all of your visual inputs begin to take on greater luminosity. Your sound inputs begin to take on greater luminosity, and you begin to engage with the metaphysical background of the world as a habit of mind rather than something you do every so often. You begin, you know, to cross over. One of my teachers once said I was in trouble, and I was talking to her, and she listened earnestly for a long time, and then she looked at me, and she goes, oh... Oh, I get it. You've been being a bridge, haven't you? Oh. And I yes. said, yes, why? And she said, well, that's nice, you know, but the only thing with being a bridge is that you yourself never get to cross over. Oh, how lovely. <laughs> I get goosebumps even remembering it. So the thing is, when you do this, you literally begin to cross Gosh. over into the metaphysical background of the world as a way of life. And then you begin to be able to work much more deeply with the real stuff that's going on. And that's what Goethe was doing and Luther Burbank when he co-created most of the food plants we use, or even Barbara McClintock, who won the Nobel Prize for her work with corn transposons. I mean, she was really clear. She said, you have to learn to see what's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. But the only way you can do that is if you have a feeling for the organism. And she said, I never went any place that the corn did not first tell me to go. So she followed that golden thread through the world, and corn revealed its nature to her, Mm. which in this instance was that the genetic changes in the corn, you know, she said, so there's these transposons, and the the genetic structure of the corn changes. And then she, she did the thing that got her in a lot of trouble. She said, you know, the instructions for gene rearrangement come from the corn and also from the environment in which it grows. And she delivered that. She was considered the most famous geneticist in the world, and she delivered that talk at a conference. Mm-hmm. And for the next 20 years, she was blackballed and not allowed to speak anywhere. Right. Because that contradicted the entire neo-Darwinian mm-hmm. mechanicalism that was in place then. But that idea, the instructions for genetic rearrangement come, come from, from the, the environment, and that ties back to what I was talking about before, that under the pressure of environmental stressors, the organism begins to rearrange its structure to give itself behavioral options outside of its habituated parameters so it can respond in such a way to maintain the homeodynamic state of the planet and or whatever it's doing in that particular eco-range, its particular function. So really the key to all of this is reclaiming the feeling sense and going mm-hmm. deeper and deeper into the metaphysical background of the world. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to... Thank you with all my heart. This is exquisite. And uh, just uh, want to ask you what you would like to say in closing, unfortunately. Uh, 
Well, the thing that that I've been, you know, really wanting to communicate to people for years and years is we've been trained to not trust ourselves from the beginning, to not trust our body, to not trust our feeling sense. We're very much taught in school that our feeling responses are unreliable. Mm-hmm. Once we began to not trust our feeling responses, we're really in a, a world of deep hurt because it is our feeling responses that give us clues to the environment in which we are. They give us clues to pay attention to. The reason why certain feeling senses occur is to let us know about the life that we're living inside of. And, you know, as this one woman said in Canada, she said, ah, once, they, once they cut you off from their feelings, they've got you, you know, and there's no way out then. So to trust your feeling sense, to trust what your feelings tell you, there's an inherent genius in every human being that is there for a reason, and that to trust that, you know, the solutions to the problems that we're having in our time, which are serious, are not going to occur from a bunch of people at the top who have advanced degrees telling us all what we should then go do. You know, what's going to happen is if we have 7 billion people trusting their own inherent genius, the solutions we're going to come up with are absolutely incredible. And, you know, just as an example of that, there were these scientists who were trying to find out how a particular AIDS enzyme folded itself so that they could figure out its molecular structure, and then they could design interventions based on that. They spent 10 years trying to figure it out and then finally admitted defeat. And in a last act of desperation, they put it on the Internet and turned it over to the gamer community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Within 10 days, 237,000 gamers had logged on to try to solve the problem. Wow. And do you know how many days it took them to solve the problem? 10 days. Wow. wow. That is what the inherent genius of human beings can accomplish. And most of those people did not have any advanced degrees. They were just people like you and me. And that's where the future lies. So we are our problems and we are our solution. Yes, we are. And the solution lies in millions of individual people following their feeling sense where it leads them. Thank you so much, Stephen Buhner. This is very precious. You're welcome, Joanna. I love being on your show. Thank you. Me too.